Welcome to the Pendulum Insight Podcast. This is a show for deal makers in the blockchain business, where we meet the players who are changing the game today and get their insight into everything from the red tape to the raise. This is your host, Colton Moffitt. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Today, we're joined by Jared Johnson, founder and managing partner at BlockRake, Inc. BlockRake is a premier capital market strategy firm for digital issuance. So, Jared, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, how you got into the blockchain space, and, uh, you know, really, what's BlockRake and how did it get started? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Colton. Uh, Just a little bit about myself. I've been an entrepreneur since I was a young man. I started out as a uh, music manager, if you will, back when I was a young man at 20 years old. Uh, We started that and uh, had a successful exit. So we actually sold that company to a larger firm. And uh, that kind of gave me my first taste of of business itself and and the way things really work. Um, Seeing technology take over that space became really interesting to me. So I moved into a different career path in professional services more. I'm still in technology though, got into healthcare and healthcare innovation. Uh, We started a company that dealt with private process automations or for private practice doctors for uh, their process automations, uh, specifically with what we used to call back then an ASP model. So it would be as, what we would now call cloud computing. So most people would know it as. So what we would take is a lot of their data and then we would house it on a central server so that way they could access it much more easily and more readily um, and then make sure that they had efficiencies in their billing processes and accounting processes. So we started that company. I'm still involved in that one as well in that business. Um, and then I had a marketing firm that I started. Um, I got really interested in professional services on a marketing digital advertising standpoint. So I moved into that and sold that firm and exited that firm. Um, that was called Big Truck Marketing. Uh, Big Truck Marketing was really focused on several key areas. Uh, FinTech, I know it sounds weird with that name, but FinTech specifically, financial services, healthcare yet again because of my experience, and um, just had a great opportunity to work with a couple fortune 500 companies, uh, being Aflac as a financial service and uh, insurance provider. And also Tyco, who is most famous notably for owning ADT under their umbrella for security. Um, Mm -hmm. So a couple of big fortune 500 companies are within marketing initiatives and partly in uh, M and a during their marketing for uh, certain mergers and acquisitions that they were under. I came to blockchain specifically because I saw the great opportunity that is available. I I believe fervently that it is absolutely the future of how we achieve uh, capital markets fundraising. I believe it is the future of how we achieve a number of different technological advancements and innovation. Um, I see a lot of people that are really smart like even smarter than me because I'm not that smart, but you know, like I see a lot of people that, are blowing past me on the genius scale, if you will, because blockchain just has that ability to really bring people together. You'll know, like, even in the market conditions that are currently availing us, if you will, people are still sticking together and pushing through. I don't think you've seen that in any side of business, in my opinion, in 
ever. And, you know, I've never seen that. People are still trying and pushing and struggling in the face of adversity like no other. So I think that the community itself is one of the reasons that it, it draws me to it because I believe that the innovation is there and I believe that the people are there and I believe that the strength of, of those people together combined are going to pull through. So that's one of the reasons that it drew me to it. Um, the other reason that drew me to it is because I believe that there's a better way to get to where we need to be as businesses, meaning how we raise money and how we protect investors, how regulators and issuers really achieve that goal together and how they interact with each other and then how investors themselves can reach points of liquidity which is like a big word for meaning how they can exit their investment you know so i mean getting to that point is really important because typically in startup capital you're looking at a few years minimum typically five to seven on averages before you're going to be able to get out of it so said a lot there, but that's how I got into it. That's why I became interested in it because of my experience in private equity in my own life and seeing how issuers were having problems and how we were really stifling the innovation of young people that had interest in creating new world technologies that are available to us. Um, and this is really one way to do it. So that's why I got in, involved in blockchain specifically. Um, BlockRake, though, BlockRake is a, is a company that we founded uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, and its focus was on capital market strategies. We have a number of partners that really came together to focus specifically on helping these startups that, to be honest, were kind of floundering and not sure of where to go next. They just thought maybe an ICO is a great way to go, and we want to kind of give them a reality check and help them to understand what it really means to get to even that point. Um, So we started this company as a professional services company, since that's my background. Um, And it really helps them to market their deals, structure their deals, market their deals to uh, venture capital institutional investors, uh, as well as uh, understanding what the public or secondary market would look like if they are going to utilize some form of digital asset issuance. Um, so because of our uh, combined forces together, we make really a great team um, and an understanding of compliance issues globally. So that's how we got together. That's great. And what you were saying about the way that the particular um, nature of the blockchain space has brought together so many brilliant minds, uh, that is also what drew me in. Um, from from a purely technological standpoint or a business opportunity standpoint, it is fascinating, but it's not necessarily more fascinating than say, you know, quantum computing or, or any other kind of finance or something, you know, as you're in the music industry, there's plenty of fun to be had there. So the question is why this? And for me, it's consistently, if I'm in a room with people that are involved in this space, I have some of the best conversations that I've ever had in my life in a compressed format one after the other. And it's just something I haven't found anywhere else. Absolutely. I think that's a great assessment. The The people that are involved in it just have such passion and it's, there's no shortage of that to be sure. You know, mm-hmm. so I completely agree with you in that sense. I see it each and every day and I see the sacrifices being made for that passion as well. And that's why it drives me to do more and more with these folks um, that are able to, to see the path 
you know, the, the finality. So uh, they know where they're going. And that's what's really fun about it is the remained and concerted focus that they have. Yeah, particularly as things are not, um, not at the good end of the hype cycle right now. And right. as far as just the price for people that are really worried about the day-to-day price of these various different assets. So knowing that and knowing that there has been this shift towards at least the regulated STO concept in the United States. Um, and then of course there are equivalent situations around the world. Where do you see BlockRick fitting into this evolving ecosystem coming into 2019 from the crowdfunding, private equity and venture capital perspective? Well, I see us fitting in perfectly because I think the problem that we're seeing in most of the the currencies, the coins, the tokens out there was that there was no underlying value. Everyone was trying to raise money without any value. Uh, They weren't attaching it to revenue or equity or any underlying asset. So there was no value that underpinned those. It was just the belief in the value itself. Um, So basically a sovereignty of a company so it didn't, it didn't make sense. What we're seeing now with STOs and that hot topic, that hot button word really, is the reality that there is value out there and there are so many deals being made. Um, just this year alone, venture capital in the United States only is more $20 billion more than it was the previous year. And that just is eclipsed by over 25%. Mm. That's an absurd figure. Okay, if you look at traditional markets, and I'm from the United States, so for me, that means the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and even the composites like Dow Jones, they're down too, and they're in correction territory. So if you're looking at what's happening in secondary public markets anyway, you're seeing a shift where they're pulling out dollars from that area, and what looks like is going on is that they're putting it into private deals. They're going for companies that have that possibility to gain you know, five, 10, 20 times their return on investment because the risk associated with secondary markets is there again anyway because of volatility. Volatility is being brought back and that's not a bad thing, but it's just giving us a kind of a pause to take in that there are a lot of private equity deals. Blockrate fits in perfectly because we can help structure those deals specifically for issuers and help them with the strategy that's necessary to package that deal to look good for someone that is investing because there's always a story behind it and as long as the story is compelling to an investor along with a good offer that has sound numbers and makes sense you're going to find that there are a lot of people willing to make a deal with you because they believe in either what your company seeks to do or is already doing. And that's the other thing. There are many people that basically just wanted to make money out of thin air, you know, without anything being available. A lot of people call it an MVP. Mm -hmm. So whatever that means, that doesn't mean you have to have something immediately to, to be able to raise money, especially if you're a tech company, if you're familiar with how they raise money, you don't have to have anything at all. You just have to have the right people in place. And another issue that, that we had is that there was too many people crowding the market. So it was this influx of people that were not ready to be raising money at that level. Um, and then that really diluted the value of any of those coins. So um, right. the way that we fit in is to help prepare people, to coach them, to get them ready. So if they have a company that's non-revenue, um, that's not generating any money, we help them to first develop their business if they already have an MVP to show revenue. So that way their projections seem more accurate. 
We help them build a sales market. We help them understand who their market really is. And then we drive those together. So we consult in that way. Uh, and then we also make sure that they're prepared for the capital markets by preparing for revenue. They need to show that, you know, they need to prepare themselves for uh, a logistical nightmare. If they're going to try and make projections on something that is really hard to project when you mm. don't know what you're going to be making. So, Gotcha. So when, when they're not making any money, if there's somebody listening right now, who's a founder, it's a small team and they've still, hopefully they've got something that functions, but how do you work with them? Um, you know, yeah. assuming that the fees or, or the structure of those deals, what's that like? So there's a, there's a couple different ways. Um, it depends on what level they're at. Now, for anybody that's listening that's at a, at a very, very, very early level, the best recommendation I can give to you is that you take the time to raise money utilizing a seed round. And a seed round to me means you take friends, family, people that are close to you, maybe like business owners that you've worked with previously, and you ask them for money because it's hard. Um, it's really hard to do that. And then when you do that, other investors will see that you've actually taken the time to sacrifice the potential for those relationships to go sour and they believe you more. You know what I mean? I know it sounds like a negative way to get a positive thing, but what really happens is, is that they see that those people that you've known your whole life trust you and they then take that secondary leap of faith because you can sit next to somebody for two years, even in an office and not know anything about them. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. But if you meet them a couple of times, you're on a Skype call, you're not necessarily going to know whether or not they're capable of running a business. Mm -hmm. But if you can see that people that have known them since they were small and people that have known them in professional settings are investing in them, even if it's small amounts, because that's probably all they have it still means more than if they're coming to an investor with nothing, just work, you know, and just themselves and trying to appear professional because it means that they've given a lot already to those people and they believe enough in them for them to give back everything they probably have. That's the biggest number one recommendation I can make to those people at that point. Early entry, it's, it's best to start and design at least the business structure to have something that you have at least fleshed out. Mm -hmm. um, beyond the idea stage, the seed stage, once you get to a stage where you have a business set up, you still may not have an MVP if you're a tech company, for instance. You still may need a lot of money. You know, you may need millions of dollars typically to be able to produce a product. That's where we can come in. And in those early stages, sometimes we do alternative compensation fees, meaning equity, um, like a capital markets firm would do. Mm -hmm. um, the, the company itself, Block Rake, is incorporated in Wyoming. So it's a U.S. company. Um, so typically we can work with any issuers throughout the world um, and an accredited investor base too. So that's pretty nice as far as being able to work with companies on that side of things. That doesn't mean for all companies, we just want equity, um, because it doesn't make sense for some companies to do that, um, right. depending on the stage, you know, series a, it might make that, that most sense, but you know, at later stages, it definitely doesn't make sense to do that because the shares are so diluted anyway, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be necessarily the best thing for either of us or their shareholders. So, um, it's really important too that we're responsible for investors in this space 
because a lot of people haven't been. So we want to make sure that each time that we're looking at an equity deal, that it makes sense for the founders, the founders trust, meaning that how they dilute their own equity. Um, and then whether or not there's any conflicts of interest, if there's other companies that we're working with or have in our portfolio already um, on an equity basis, that would potentially be, as I said, a conflict of interest. We don't want to do that. You know, that's not fair for their investors. It's not fair for us. Um, we do like to have some cross sections of, of, to, of companies to be able to at least play together because we combine those to uh, make a better portfolio for ourselves. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. And so, you know, if you're listening right now, the, the main takeaway, if you are just starting out is do go do the, uh, the old fashioned way and ask friends and family and people that you've worked with, uh, done business with, because it sends the right message to people who don't know you and would consider investing. Um, it's a, it's a psychological thing for you as well to be committed. It's not strangers, uh, faceless strangers on the internet who have no way of ever tracking you down. Uh, even if you're the best person in the world, there's not the same kind of accountability as when you have to look the people in the face at Thanksgiving. So do, do tap those old resources if you can. Um, thank you for sharing that. So, you know, we talked about, you said it's kind of a hot button or a hot topic, depending on who you ask, uh, the, the STO concept. And I'd like to ask you how you see the development of tokenized assets playing out over the near future and, and long term as well. And I see here in the notes that uh, your team also brought up the listed company offerings, a new class of SEOs in Asia. So, sure. let's, let's so for that. first I'll touch on what I think the STOs can do. We're working on something right now that would be considered, in my opinion, a three-tiered hybrid style offering. Um, most issuers typically issue either debt, equity, or some fixed income component that can play on either side of those. What that means in debt is usually bonds. You know, So a company will issue debt against whatever asset it would be, and then eventually promise to pay a certain amount over a period of time at maturity. That's debt. And then you have your equity deals, which are pretty common. Most people, they, they equate it to stocks, you know, how stocks work. So I'm not going to go into and teach everybody, you know, what those mean, but debt, equity, and fixed income, which is just interest. So like mortgage-backed securities, for instance, those are typically like a fixed income or like a coupon that's attached to a bond are considered like a fixed income. Um, so those are really three issuance. The cool thing about an STO, about a token, is that it can combine all of those offers easily. Instead of unpackaging them, it can package them all together and make it easy via the smart contract vehicle for delivery to an investor. And it also makes sense because it's, it's more portable, A, meaning that it's also more liquid, but it also is a protectant for the investor and the company and regulators. The reason is at the wallet level, you can hard code specific individuals for their own jurisdictional restrictions on say an exempt security. The US has tons of rules. Um, we have it pretty clearly laid out though. So that's mm -hmm. nice when it comes to it, but we can at the wallet level. So like if for me, if I was an investor in a specific company for instance, and I wasn't able to trade that token publicly, at least for six months. The company that's managing that particular the tokens that I own in my wallet could put a smart contract to denote that I'm not allowed to trade those on any exchange, even if the company goes to an exchange before those six months are up. 
Right. Tell me that's not a beautiful vehicle to protect every single portion from the regulator, the exchange level, depositories, everyone involved. Yeah. It is very simple. It is seamless. It cuts down on auditing costs as well. So the reduction in costs over periods of time, like say 10 years, become massive. I was talking to an issuer the other day that said typically they do it with PricewaterhouseCoopers. They said it used to take about four hours because they were issuing debt. And that's actually not very long at all. I'll tell you that right now. And now they're down to four minutes. They did wow. it in four minutes. So imagine reducing your costs by even four times. It's much more than that, but even four times the yeah. reduction in auditing costs alone is worth the vehicle to exist. So for issuers listening out there, security tokens are not just this little buzzword to mean cryptocurrency 2.0. What it really means is that there is a vehicle for you to make sense that reduces costs and protects you more. It makes sense. So that's what I see at least from the future. Um, yeah. of STOs. I don't even like that term because I hate like token, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It just is like a fun little word. It reminds me of Mario Brothers, you know, just like hitting <laughs> the coins up in the tokens. That's cool for gamers. Awesome. Love it. But the reality is I think that we're talking about assets and we're talking about digital assets. And when I say that, DAIs, digital asset issuance. The SEC kind of took a little bit of that term. Um, they call it the same thing pretty much, um, but it's digital asset issuance is my opinion. That's the best way for us to call it that because there's still going to be cryptocurrency issuers in, my, in the way I see things. Yeah. There will be people that are trying to issue coins or currencies really that do have a utility and those are fine, but they are very different than what we're talking about right now. Sure. The second part of your question was, um, I guess, LCOs, listed company offerings. Uh, and what those are is a company that is a public issuer already, somebody that has already issued on a stock exchange, for instance, is now reissuing instead of diluting shares that are publicly traded, is now reissuing to represent those shares, that value in an exchange offering on a, a cryptocurrency exchange. And those are really interesting because they still represent the net asset value that is represented on another public exchange, but they're for issuers that are seeking greater capitalization without diluting those initial uh, shareholders even more having to do splits or any consolidation. Uh, consolidation is really bad typically, never goes well for an issuer if they have to reconsolidate stock to improve value. So this is a way to improve capitalization and then get people into equity shares if there ever is a moment where there's greater liquidity for the initial common shares of stock. That's really what all of that means. Um, so basically it's a publicly traded company reissuing for cryptocurrency or a security token on a cryptocurrency exchange. Sure. Interesting. Uh, you know, I'd spoken with Darren Marble in one of these interviews and he prefers the term digital security offering, which is uh, similar, I guess, to the way that you phrased it. So yeah, there's, a, there's probably a reason that we're agreeing on that is just because um, security tokens, it's, it, it almost sounds like we're talking about something very different than what we actually mean, because we're not talking about like, securing something. It's a security. You know what I mean? Like, right. that's what it is. So in the United States for us, when we say securities, we don't mean like we're safe. 
That's not what it means. Mm -hmm. And then when I hear security token, I, I, for some reason, there's a connotation that we're almost talking about like cyber security and gaming and stuff like that. And it's, it, it's just wrong. Like I don't want people to think that globally it is an asset and we're issuing it digitally. You know what I mean? Right. So like we're taking these assets, whether it's debt or equity and we're putting it out there in a digital format packaged together. That's what it is. So it's almost like these fund vehicles that are represented uh, specifically in these little coin forms, um, really just, you know, long tail uh, crypto wallets and signatures that, that are make it safer. So sure, but security tokens, not my thing. Gotcha. Uh, you know, language is important and it'll be evolving uh, over time. So might as well use your own way of referring to it and see how many people catch on because it's still so young. And there is a miss, uh, let's put it this way, I think a disconnect. So a lot of people think they hear SEO, they think it's a new way of referring to an ICO or rebranding when it's actually a completely different thing. Um, it's quite different. It's a, it's a different product. It's a specific technological solution for essentially capital markets activity. So then you have the ICO, which in itself, I mean, in my opinion, seems to have been kind of a misnomer. So it sounds like IPO, which sounds like a nice way to raise money. Um, but at the same time, it was mostly crowdfunding. And then they wanted to call it a utility so that they couldn't be regulated while it was sold. Well, it was pitched as a currency and sold like a security. So um, it, it's a mess. <laughs> I could see why you'd want to bring some clarity to that. Absolutely. So how would you characterize the benefits and drawbacks of digital issuance, such as, you know, a digital asset issuance versus sure. a traditional IPO? So not comparing well, it to an ICO, but to an IPO. Well, the first, the first benefit is cost. Um, an IPO typically is going to be incredibly expensive because you need third party audits. Um, the amount of legal fees that you're going to be paying just to get to that point are pretty excessive. Um, so IPOs are hard to do if you're, um, say like at a series A, series B round of private equity anyway, because you're going to be spending a minimum of a million dollars usually to be able to do that. Um, that's really a bad move in my opinion for most early stage companies to try that, to, to get to that point of capitalization because they haven't built enough market share, market cap to really warrant that amount uh, to spend initially. They also have, are not generating enough revenue typically. So you need to be generating a lot of revenue to even have people care that you're doing an IPO. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, let's take for instance, Lyft. Pretty much anyone I, I just said that word to knows who I'm talking about, right? Lyft, right. you know, right. So they just issued an IPO, okay? We know who they are. People are going to be interested. They're going to be looking at that. There's going to be an underwriter. So someone is going to be able to buy all of those shares up front and then sell them to the public because they guarantee the price. So there's not going to be a large level of volatility. We understand what that means, but that company is, you know, making $15 billion a year. Right. Interesting that they just went to an IPO and Uber still hasn't when they're at 120 billion a year. So if you guys are listening to me out there, maybe you're hearing the types of numbers I'm throwing around. Those are, those are the people that usually IPO. It's not everybody. There's plenty of companies out there that are at like 10 million, $15 million a year that are doing an IPO on smaller exchanges, not the New York Stock Exchange, for instance. But there's many, many, many securities exchanges around the world. 
Um, you know, we're talking from Jamaica and Barbados and the Caribbean. You're talking to the, you know, TSX, um, you know, you're talking about in Toronto, the CSE, if a small, you know, Canadian exchange, it depends on how much of a trader you are and understand that there's many, 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 many securities exchanges in the world already. And they do many different things. Um, and there's not quite as many securities exchanges as crypto exchanges now, but you know, there's, there's still a lot of exchanges out there for people to utilize. Gotcha. Exactly. So, yeah, so it's definitely a very, uh, it's an important thing. It's, it's a new development that's addressing that middle ground, um, smaller cap companies, earlier stage, uh, they've got revenue, they've got an actual functional product, they've got market share, users, clients, whatever it might be, or it could be a fund, you know, real estate, um, any kind of assets. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of uh, real estate issuers that come to me, I think I'd say at least two to three every week now, because I think they see the great benefits of security tokens, digital asset issuance, because real estate, for instance, is typically an illiquid asset class that you have to wait many, many, many years to see those returns, but it's also the biggest asset class in the world. So they're looking for a way to create liquidity in it. And this is one way to do so at a much faster pace, um, creating fund vehicles. So like, uh, you know, either a venture capital fund or, or some type of hedge fund that would represent those, that value combining and packaging different properties together really yeah. is a great way to create that asset class. And I mean a lot, and that's great. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see those things coming out as recently as they have. Um, just to touch on digital asset issuance over other forms like traditional, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a couple. And I think that it's, you're looking at a smaller market segment right now. Uh, you're not looking at a greater retail segment like the entire world pretty much knows about securities. Um, so that's the drawback. Um, about it because there's not as much market penetration for digital currencies. But if you can convince the public, however, that it is not about the currency that is digitally issued, but it is about the value, you are talking about dollars and cents still, or you're talking about whatever fiat currency just represented differently. It's just value that is the misconception here. When we're talking about value, the assets themselves are now converted in a represented value as a token or digital asset um, in this instance. So it's going to take time. This is a still a very early stage when it comes to it because you have to sell the thing if you're a broker dealer, for instance, in a different way than you would other things because you're gonna to have to tell people that it's a, a token or a digital asset and that they're going to have it delivered to their wallet, you mm -hmm. know. So that may be a very different idea for them than traditional um, piece of paper or stock certificate that's transferred to them in the mail. Or, you know, if you go on your, your um, platform, your exchange of choice, it's sitting there for you to see um, just in a number. So that's pretty similar to me at least, but it's right. just going to take at least good and smart people to explain that well. You know, just saying that it's the same thing that we've been doing. It is a better delivery vehicle. It's a better security vehicle. That's what it is. And it provides you with much faster liquidity and a, at least a clearer route to get there. Right. So it boils down to if they're not all that tech savvy or even people that are um, don't necessarily understand the intricacies, um, it's a lot to wrap your head around. 
you basically need to put it to them. It's like, look, this is a weird way to buy it, but there's a good chance you're going to be able to sell it easier and in fractions of what you purchase um, much sooner. And would that be interesting to you? And a lot of time they might say, okay, yeah, well, we'll take a look at that thing. It's all about the offer. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that people aren't, aren't considering though. It's about the offer that you're putting out there. If your numbers don't make sense, don't expect people to like be running to your investment to, to just throw money at it. Your numbers have to make sense right down to the, literally the very cent and your projections when you think they're conservative, scale them back even more, you know, like try to be super conservative when you're estimating your projected revenue, because what matters is not that you're, you're hitting every single one of your numbers, but it shows that you did enough research and that you're trying to be very, very conservative and very responsible and thorough when it comes to what you're expecting from yourself to yeah. give to other people, because it is because of your work, the work of a third party that these investors are going to make money, you know? So they want to see that you're being thorough, that they want to see that you've invested the time to understand what your projections really look like. Not that you're going to take in a hundred million and you're going to make 2.4 billion in two years. I don't know of a lot of companies that do that. You know, if any, I'm really, you know, not certain. I, I can't tell you when the first time Google even took a profit, you know, you're talking about probably, it was probably like five years before they had a profit. Uh, if I was, if I'm correct, it may be incorrect, but I'm pretty sure it was a five year point before Google is, we can probably Google that, but anyway, so. <laughs> and it that speaks to the fact that whether or not they had a profit, the fact that we can still go Google it and it would be our first instinct, unless you're worried about privacy for us. They went, right. If <laughs> <laughs> one, that was all money well spent. So uh, I would, I would then, you know, want to bring up the concept of, um, where it's going to happen. So I know that your team's distributed. I think one of the gentlemen uh, that you work with, Joel, is actually here in Thailand where I am. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about the terms of uh, capital flowing into regulated jurisdictions, heavily regulated jurisdictions like the US where you said before, lots of rules, but they're clearly laid out versus people still trying to get into those flexible and unregulated or more actively courting the blockchain space, uh, those kind of jurisdictions. Sure. So what you're talking about to me is another benefit of security tokens, um, digital assets. It's that there's global entry. You have all these marketplaces that typically wouldn't see these deals coming across their desk. They're more likely to at least see them now. So it's a better vehicle for them to at least have entry into these deals. If I'm an investor in Hong Kong, it's pretty unlikely that I'm going to see a real estate deal in New York or Los Angeles um, as easily as I would see a deal from Beijing. You know, it's just not as likely. It doesn't mean that it won't happen, but with this, it's pretty likely that I can see it anytime I want. I can see these private deals, which is what they really are, um, in a public format. You know, so that, that really helps to, to provide a little clarity there. For people that are trying to raise money unregulated and are trying to raise money without um, any idea of what they should actually be doing, should stop immediately because they're not doing the right thing for their investor. If your first instinct is just to get as much money as possible for your company, it's not that that's a bad thing, but that's the wrong thing to be thinking. It should be, how can I protect the investor that is putting their hard-earned money into my company 
as much as possible. And that means over diluting my shares. That means not over diluting my capitalization when I'm not ready. It, it means a number of those things to be responsible and to be considerate of those people. And if you're doing it in an unregulated fashion, in my opinion, that can be one of the worst disservices to your investors you could possibly do. Um, regulation is not always a good thing, but it's definitely not a bad thing. Uh, you know, sometimes it does stifle what we're able to do, doesn't make things as quick. Um, I would like to see some of them changed, but that it doesn't mean that they're, they're not good right now. They're good. They're not great. Um, especially in the United States, they're good because I understand what I need to do every, for every single thing, you know, because if, as long as you understand the laws, you can help people to design their offers properly. Uh, especially when you use legal counsel, they know the laws too. And you guys are talking the same jargon, the same language. It's like, you're just in this concert that is makes sense so much faster. Now, when you go to markets where there is less regulation, you're not really sure what to do and if you're going to get in trouble, you know? So mm -hmm. that's the, that's the problem. Like, uh, it's like, I can't say with great certainty in some areas of the world, what their rules really are, you know, like there are some that are clearly laid out, but I'm like, well, I'm just going to use the U.S.'s rules because they're pretty, pretty stringent anyway. So if I'm following everybody, I'm pretty sure I'm safe for the most part. Um, some rules in Canada are actually a little bit more restrictive, not much, but just some rules, you know, so just like by the, the time frames of restricted security exemptions, um, you know, things like that. But you have to just be well aware that if you're going to be raising money in any jurisdiction, you should read up on all the rules and know all the regulations. And if you're running a business, that can be pretty cost prohibitive and be a big opportunity cost for your business. Because if you're taking your CEO, you know, your COO or any portion of your core team away from their duties, their day-to-day -day operations, just to figure out how to raise capital in like Malta, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, a little island of 400,000 people, you may be doing yet again, a disservice to your investors, to the folks that really need you be paying attention to your business and generating revenue. That's right. another area where we come in to help. Like guys, just let us do this stuff for you and show you what can be done. Um, you yeah. do a jurisdiction analysis and where the, the best targets are. And you don't just say, let's open it up to every single place on earth because that's not what you're trying to do. Probably if you're a global company already, you probably don't need to be doing, you know, an ICO, a security token offering. You probably are ready for an IPO anyway. So. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, you know, the kind of a philosophical debate within the whole blockchain space about regulation and, as a person who's fairly, you know, when I'm just being academic about it or philosophical, more or less squarely in the anarcho-capitalist type camp. Uh, and then there's the practical, what, you know, if you actually want to go and do business in the world, dealing with the fact that there are governments, you know, and um, there's, there's definitely an element of responsibility as well that comes into play, as you said, being responsible to your investors. So when you have a project like Bitcoin that was, you know, theoretically leaderless, um, that they're able to go and do that. Bitcoin's a fascinating thing in and of itself. And the, the kind of idea of how blockchain is presented to people ties a lot into that sort of philosophy, but it's a totally different thing when you start going and raising capital and on the back of the qualifications of a central team, like we're awesome because we do this, this, and this, and we have these advisors, give us your money. 
and we'll give you this revolutionary visionary thing. Well, then you have a real responsibility and in an anarchist frame of reference, I mean, that's fundamentally your responsibility and nobody else's. And if you have pissed off investors who figure out which jurisdiction you are living in, who are you going to blame but yourself? That's just something I've been thinking about. It's kind of a half-baked idea, but you know, there's a departure from the core concept of something like Bitcoin and say, also that applies to our project here. It's like, well, you're, you're really raising funds and you're kind of breaking the law. And so you can't be shocked when they come after you. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I would agree with you as far as, as uh, philosophical leanings go. Um, unfortunately, we just don't live in a perfect world. You know, right. if I'm going to live in a utopian society, yeah, I'm all for anarchy. Unfortunately, we don't. We have to protect ourselves from other people um, because they're not protecting us from them. You know, right. so we have to we have to find people that are willing to do it on our behalf and we have to trust them, too. Um, yeah. Trustless societies are great. And creating sovereignty and borderless um, nations are really something that is interesting to me. And that's, I think, what Bitcoin will eventually be able to do, whether it's Bitcoin specifically or some other uh, vehicle of value that that generates that sovereignty, it's coming. That's a, that's a sociopolitical debate though. Um, right. You know, and that is something that I think is, is very important. Um, and that's part of my background as well, but it, that's something that is incredibly interesting as a, as a use case for it is how it's going to revolutionize uh, the world because we're not going to need, you know, hundreds of different currencies. We're just going to need one. You know what I mean? Just one currency, you know, like whatever it is, um, if it's just something called the units, for instance, it doesn't matter. It's right. going to be one. It eventually will be because it's just faster, more efficient. Uh, it makes sense for all of our needs. So, yeah. And then taking the other kinds of assets that are out there, um, you know, because like currency is a currency and that's obviously a useful and necessary thing. It's a technology that stems back, you know, a very, very, long distance into human history but then there's Absolutely. all the other things you know the assets and being able to make a a digitally accessible and convenient global representation of those where somebody as you said in hong kong can participate in a real estate deal in la without having to get on a flight and and conveniently be able to sell their position in that quickly um, in a way that's responsible and everyone's accountable that's exactly. And you just, step. and you just made a huge point there. Like, think about that. So let's say that they are considering doing a real estate deal in LA. Typically they're like, well, it's going to take me too long for me to get out of that deal if I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. Like if I'm wrong and it's not what I really want to do, I can't exit that deal. I'm in it. You know, I'm in that deal for a long period of time and I can't recoup that capital for our fund, for our investors who we represent as a, you know, as a fund. Um, so what your point really to me is, is that it, it provides a quicker route for people if, for instance, they're not right or if they need the liquidity for their investment groups um, for other actions. It does create volatility. And that's yet again what I said earlier in this interview. That's not a bad thing. Volatility is actually very good. That's how we're going to make money back and forth, hedging your bets against certain items, certain entries and certain exit points. So understanding that is how we get to true value. Once you start propping up all of these different coins or whatever exists like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, when you prop them up with real world value and assets underneath of them, 
-hmm. that's when you start to see greater adoption because then you have a lot of these big institutional players that want those things to be able to invest into these particular digital asset issuance. Once you get to that point, you have greater adoption. It's just yeah. a really good way to get there. It'll be fascinating. I think that the people looking at it from that perspective have been uh, slower to rush in and more measured as you know, people with kind of fundamental investing mindset tend to be. Uh, so what you saw with the huge kind of bubble of hype was a lot of, not to pick on the concept of retail investors or anything, but that you had people preying on that. And then you also had very optimistic people who come from the the day trading uh, technical analysis type of trading, like, oh, we're going to go, we love the volatility. The value doesn't really need to be there for that. It works well for them to make their money. If, as long as there's something they can trade and it, it re resembles what they're used to doing, then they're happy. So as you said, it's, it's bringing the rest of the value online that has traditionally been uh, kind of out there in the real world, brick and mortar ignored. We had equity crowdfunding in 2015 that really became uh, legal and accessible. It might've been 2014. Um, you know, so you could go and you could invest in real estate projects a little bit here, a little bit there, but it wasn't what it's going to be. That's for sure. Oh no. Yeah. So uh, the, the future is definitely right. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would say so. I mean, I've definitely chosen a funny time to really get involved in all this when, uh, you know, the mainstream news is saying it's all just a scam and it's going to hell in a handbasket. Wait a minute. There's value here, <laughs> but we're both focused on developing partnerships within the blockchain economy. And I've seen that in, in my research at BlockRig. So, you know, we share those values, but why don't you tell us more about why you emphasize partnership development at BlockRig? Well, first and foremost is, as I was saying earlier, again, community is in this particular space, so, so passionate and so, so directing and so giving of themselves. That in and of itself and creating partnerships is a way to, to really understand people better and to hone your craft. Usually people say one head is good, but two heads you know, are better than one, right? Mm -hmm. The reason they say that is because you're getting different perspective. Partnerships, even when people do similar things to you, are incredibly valuable. Um, not only do you get what people would say, the competitive advantage of analysis, I don't care about that, but what really matters is that I'm understanding what is happening in a particular industry sector that I don't understand as much as I could. Mm. Learning. If I'm, if I'm open, if I'm ready and giving of myself just as much as other people are, we can certainly go much further than we ever have before. We can get to points where any other industries are, are looking to what we're doing, if we can accomplish just those simple partnerships together that make us imbibe new synergy. That is incredibly important when it comes to any industry. You see most industries infighting. You see most companies fighting against each other and competing to the point where they break or they combine. And that's fine, but I see a lot of opportunity because in consolidating this market down, we're going to find a lot of companies and groups of developers that are going to form out of that. And when they do, we're going to find the real innovation that was underlying all of that stuff at the top that was part of greed. And greed is not bad. You know, let's go back to Gordon Gecko. Greed is good, right? If you, if you watched Wall Street in the 80s, and I may be dating myself just a little bit here, you know what I'm talking about. 
Greed isn't good. It's hope that is good. And greed comes from hope. And hope comes from the belief that people around me are going to give me as much as I'm going to give them. Yeah. That's where we find true partnership and true value. And that's in the human element. And that's why cryptocurrency is a value. Yeah, that's, that's definitely an interesting take on it. And it's funny that you bring up greed because, um, you know, even that quote, greed is good. I went and watched the movie. Uh, as you said, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say it dates you, but I had to go back and watch it after I was born. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the concept that struck me was, I believe the quote's actually closer to uh, greed for lack of a better word, it's good. So we have a kind of a struggle with how to describe this desire for something more than what is there. It could be monetary, um, but there's a difference between avarice and, and hope, as you said. So if you can get a couple people in a room who are generally good people, who are generally responsible people, and there's you know a healthy dose of compassion, the fact that they want to go make a bunch of money or have this massive plot of land or whatever is, it's a fun thing to do with your life. You know, it's quite mundane, just not pursuing anything. And one of the ways that we keep track of who's winning it's uh well for some people it's lambos we found but uh it's a it's a fascinating thing so because partnership uh development is kind of risky you know it's on the one hand it's so beneficial and it's so powerful as you mentioned it's also kind of risky um you're dealing with people across the world it's hard to even conduct due diligence in a different jurisdiction you might not even know what's what's the going rate for a PI or how do I understand this financial product that they're putting forward and how that applies within their legal framework. Sure. What's, uh, what's that process like for you guys? And tell us about so, it, a time when it's gone well. So that, it, that process for us is like the traditional way. Uh, we go visit people. So yeah. if it's somebody that wants to engage with us, we're not just saying, okay, send us a few pages here and there. Um, I'm just gonna let everybody know, like we're not cheap. You know, we're, we're not like if you're paying us, it's because we do a really good job and we're very thorough as mm. I was talking about earlier. Um, and that's important. So if we're going to engage with somebody, we make sure that it makes sense, uh, especially if we're going to do it on an equity standpoint, for instance, you know, so for, for us to advise on that sense, you know, yet again, not, it's not cheap and that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah. So being a premier service means that we, we provide premier offering. Having said that, and when I say traditional and go visit them, I have a story about that that's kind of funny because there are these people, um, I won't necessarily get into who they were, names will be changed to, per, you know, to prevent the innocent from being harmed. But um, what, what really is going on here is that there are people out there that will take you down to the very end, if you will. They'll fly you out to a place, they'll tell you all these wonderful stories. And the reality is they can't even issue legally. They can't even be a part of a business. And what they're trying to do is to overcome the shortcomings of their own lives and the points that they've gotten to uh, that have brought them to that point. And unfortunately, they're trying to make you a part of that. And that is what is called a scam. Okay, not a company that fails, but a company that doesn't try to do anything that is a scam. Okay, there's there's something that's very different. Uh, we went down to uh, an area in Florida, and there was a company there that was 
very good. It looked really good, like an interesting use case uh, with illiquid assets using admiralty claims. And we've seen that before, and we've seen scams come out of it before, but this one seemed like it was legit, like like super legit. Yeah. Get down there, they bring us up to um, a beautiful high-rise condominium that overlooks the Atlantic Ocean in, uh, I think it was like near the Fort Lauderdale area. It was, uh, no, it was West Palm Beach. So West Palm Beach, Florida. Yeah. We're down there, we're, just, we're taking a look, and it's just, it's beautiful. And then I start to feel sick to my stomach. Like I feel like I'm about to get hives and like something is just going on with me. And I think it was, I'm allergic to bullshit, you know, and that's what the problem was. It's like, what are we doing up here? You know, what are, what are we like looking over the ocean for? They have these packets of stuff to show us that it doesn't matter. Like none of this matters. This is not real. This is thin air. This is bullshit and it sucks let's go so yeah. that's how we do our due diligence you know we want to overlook something i'd rather look a person in their eye and just know whether or not it's going to be a real a real use case a real project or something that investors are going to be protected in and even when you do that even then there are war stories from plenty of broker dealers that i've met that are like man i still got fleeced you know yeah. And that's in traditional markets too. So don't you worry. It's everywhere, unfortunately. But that's what people like us are here to do is to take a look at those companies and those projects and do our best. Yeah. And that's all anybody can do. And even when you do your best, there, there are people that are trying so much harder than you to scam mm -hmm. you as hard as you are trying to figure out whether or not they're real. Yeah, that's something I think will be uh, fascinating to to watch it develop over the next ten to twenty years because theoretically we're trying to do things in a more trustless way, uh, but still you kind of have to deal with people and people are well. Let's just—I mean, everybody knows in, in white collar crime it's the smoothest criminals in the world. Uh, you don't Absolutely. see it coming. So it's uh, that's a fascinating story, though. I mean, Admiralty. Uh, claims that you're getting deep into sovereign citizen type of territory. Absolutely. And you're talking, you're talking about government that's also involved in that too. So yeah. we're talking about U S government and they're still trying to do this stuff. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I want nothing to do with that. I'm out. Good luck to you. Wish you the best. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Talk about and a good life. Cause I don't really want to talk to you anymore. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, if, if that person's listening, like <laughs> what would you say to them? Nice try. <laughs> no, I just be like, Hey, I wish you the best. And you know, if you're going to try that hard to take people's money, why don't you put the same efforts into actually making a business? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Right. Fair it takes enough. the same amount of time. You know, I'll just be honest with you. It takes the same amount of time, the same effort. And you would probably be really good at making a business. You just need to figure out what your swan song is. Find mm. your true calling, you know, like do something that is good and worthwhile and stop putting your efforts into the things that are taking you further and further away from adding value to the rest of the world. Yeah. There's, there's something um, fascinating about coming up with a really clever scheme. And I think all of us who have the kind of disposition that we have philosophically and the ability to acquire knowledge quickly, I mean, far from a genius, but being clever enough to see like, Oh wow. I mean, playing a game, a strategy game, Simplest example, nobody gets hurt, but pulling one over on somebody is just fun, right? The problem is when you, you get out of line and you realize um, some people start going really far down that path and they're getting off on that and it's kind of a, a little a ego boost, adrenaline rush, 
And then you've got Bernie Madoff, you know, 40, 50 years into the game. And <laughs> that's no good for anybody. And it actually... I, I, think the, I think the issue with those things is that those people start out with good intentions. They're yeah. like, I want to show these people that I can do good for them. And I know that if I just, just do it for a little while longer, I'm going to show them that I can really do good. Mm. And then they can't. And that's okay. But that's the truth. And you just didn't do that anymore. You wanted to keep going with your lie. And, you know, good intentions and all put aside, just don't do that. Just, just don't do that. That's, that's all it is. If you just don't lie, you're pretty much safe. You may still make a mistake, but if you just don't lie, for the most part, in regulation, too, you're safe. You know, that's all it needs to be, just transparency. Yet again, another reason why these types of issuance, digital asset issuance, are going to help investors is because it provides clear transparency. We don't see that yet, but that's because there weren't any assets that had to actually be reported. There weren't cash balance sheets. These things weren't attached to those smart contracts previously in ICOs. Now they will be. Now they will be part of those offerings, and they will be super clear. Yet again, another layer of investor protection, why they're a benefit to them. And that's a really poignant uh, thing to bring up. I mean, so much of the perception right now is that, okay, that's just a new term for ICO and ICO is a way to screw people over. Uh, and now whether or not that's true in every case, so we'll set that aside. But what you're saying is that actually with the digital securities, we're looking at more protection. It's actually safer. When it's done right, it's actually safer. So, you know, it's a benefit. It's going to be a challenge to, <laughs> to, to spread that information in a way that people receive, I think. Um, it, it'll take it'll take time, but it, it's it's getting spread to the people that need to hear it. Talk to major issuers. We're talking about people that issue hundreds of millions to billions of dollars in either debt or equity a year. Yeah. They have great interest in issuing in it once there's more clarity. They just want to make sure that we fix all the bugs. So they even test the waters utilizing third-party issuance, which is totally fine and, and still even legal. Um, but they just want to see that we all understand what we're doing. You know, mm-hmm. don't wait as long. Like, don't worry. As long as we show these people that we know what we're doing and we're still trying to do the right things, this is going to be a flood that comes in. And I am not kidding when I say that everybody may think that it's going to come from somewhere else. Like there's going to be this global retail renaissance for ICOs. I'm here to tell you, I don't care about that. Okay. What I care about is that there's real value being provided for people everywhere and that that's going to flood the market from wherever that money comes from, because you're protecting every single investor, whether they're institutional or retail, and you're providing them with benefits like liquidity, transparency, governance and security these are all things that matter to people and then when you also talk about custody you can make sure that those solutions are also a part of it too we are figuring this all out right now and it's okay we didn't figure it out super quick like everybody wanted us to that's okay as well but we're almost there and when we get there there is just a gate of money that's just being held back that's ready to get poured into it for companies that are good and realistic and then also have assets or at least value proposition that makes sense and a good team. Think about how you cultivate the people that are in your network and, and the types of people that you want to be around you. 
Right. You want good people around you, so why wouldn't you want them in your company? How do you get them there? Well, you have to offer them something of value, and a coin bag is not going to cut it, you know? So remember that. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, true. And I think with um, the case of, of utility tokens, ICOs, retail, as you said, that's not it's not mutually exclusive. I mean, a person can, can do that. If, if you have a genuine use case where that makes sense, you know, like you said, gaming, a lot of what's interesting in the gaming industry right now, where they're trying to use these tokens, like, all right, well, what if your in-game gold was actually uh, tradable more easily or in-game items were tied to whatever that's useful there. That's totally sure, Yeah. Um, and that's, that's why non-fungible tokens are a big thing, but you know, and then those, those can also be used for things like art too, you know, like, I mean, you get into these big use cases too. So beyond gaming, that's why these, this ideology was really founded, but that's a good point too. There are many illiquid assets that can be utilized and that's, or at least given new wings, if you will, in capital markets, because there are these, these new designs that we're making. And while, you know, um, ERC, I think it was, is it 221? Is that what the tokens are? Anyway, anyway, non-fungible tokens. I apologize to those Ethereum um, purists out there that I may have just slaughtered whichever <laughs> token moniker it was. But the reality is um, non-fungible tokens do have a, a real-world use case that are applicable to those illiquid assets. Um, yeah. So something of great value. Let me, um, let me just ask you if, if – uh... What do you find most concerning or risky about strategic partnerships? And while you while you answer that, unfortunately, I'm going to have to run and see who's knocking at my door. I know it's so Problem. weird. But go ahead and answer that question. What do you find most risky and most desirable about uh, setting up strategic partnerships? And who is an ideal partner for BlockRig in the near future? Sure. So I would say the, the riskiest part about setting up um, strategic partnerships is really in deciding who are the best people that you want around you? Um, who are the ones that care the most? And that's the hardest part because everybody says they do. Um, finding the right strategic partners take a lot of time. It's like a dance that you're going through. Uh, it's a relationship that you're starting. So that's the biggest risk involved in any of those strategic partnerships, um, any businesses that you, you take on and help as well. Um, I would say the greatest benefits to them are the more people that you work with the more partnerships that you create together, the better opportunity each and every one of those organizations and those people have at growth. And growth is what provides true value. So having said that, who are the types of partners that we wanna work with the most? Um, BlockRate wants to work with businesses that are developing. They wanna work with startups. We help startups start up. We help them get their legs. The reason that we do this is to help early stage companies to become more viable, to develop their businesses, to develop their strategies. Specific businesses like uh, for us now, a block station, for instance, somebody that is working with a regulated securities exchange already in Jamaica as a test pilot, issuing security tokens is going to be one of the world changing uh, partnerships that I can foresee. It in the near future. What they're able to do, the entire ecosystem that a block station, for instance, can solve for each and every portion of an investment ecosystem from the depository, the exchange level, the investor, the broker dealer, is 
a concert of an opus. It is something beautiful. It is a symphony that Beethoven himself would be proud of. Their product is going to revolutionize everything in our space because they are not working with just crypto exchanges. Their goal is to work specifically with the regulated securities exchanges in the world. And if you don't know why that's important, I will tell you briefly, the regulated securities exchanges are going to offer digital assets and they're going to issue them on their platforms. You're going to be able to publicly trade security tokens as many people call them. And you're going to be able to do them freely with those exemptions written in. Now, you think you can already do that, that's fine. But you can't do it safely like you'd be able to with this type of offering, with that type of partnership. Right. The reason is you don't have the depositories at the level of your own regulated securities exchange to reconcile those actual buy-sell orders. You probably don't know what I'm talking about if you're a retail investor, that's okay. That depository is a regulated body that works with your exchange to reconcile every single accounting transaction. It's super important that they are part of that ecosystem and they're not even on regulated exchanges when it comes to securities yet. They solve this problem so that way they can all talk to each other. So not only is it going to help with regular crypto assets as we're talking about or digital assets, it's going to help with all securities to make every single transaction from the broker dealer when they're talking to a client and getting them invested into an exchange to the retail investor who just picks up their phone, downloads an app, gets on exchange and then pops open a, a trade for, for uh, Bitcoin or at that point, another company, you know, yes. and into Bitcoin from that or into that company from Bitcoin. Yeah. So this type of partnership is something that I love to at least talk about because I think that they're something that's very special. Yeah. Um, anytime that I see exchanges that pop up, there's a lot of them out there. I'm always like, wow, there's another one. Um, and I say that and many of our clients are exchanges um, <laughs> typically because they need the most help and regulatory help. But, you know, another one that we, that we have that we started working with is Hyperion. Um, they're a Canadian exchange, but they also have a competitive advantage to almost every single crypto exchange minus maybe two that I can think of offhand. And that is that they have an ATS or an alternative trading system. That's another partnership that we have. What that means is that they're going to be able to issue yet again security tokens in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite ready because there are some regulations. There's the forms that you have to actually file to be able to do that and they just have to approve it. But when it is ready, which is not very far off, you're talking about yet again, another flood of money being like, oh, well, it's on an exchange that's regulated on an ATS and in a system that I understand and I'm a broker dealer so now I can package that simply for my investors, typically high net worth individuals, makes it very simple, seamless, easy to do. These things are happening real time and they are going to be game changing. And I'm not kidding when I say that, like this is serious stuff here. This is like what we're all waiting for to happen. And I'm seeing it and I'm like, I'm just some guy, you know what I mean? Like I'm just some guy, like I've been in business and I thought it was cool and I've, I was good at it. And I mean, I'm, I've been good at it a lot, but I've never had the moment where I'm like, am I at the precipice of like some great event happening? And now I actually am starting to feel like that. And it's really weird. And it's, it like makes you well up and you're like, 
I don't know where to put my hands or what to say next because I'm just confused. <laughs> you know, right. Exactly. Like I am so confused right now because I'm excited. The amount of elation and joy that we're about to see for the world is amazing. And it makes me so happy to be a part of it. Um, that's why I do it. That's why I wake up at all hours of the night to take calls from people in Thailand or, you know, sometimes Vietnam or wherever it's from. Right. But it's important. It's important. The world is important. If you have a global mindset, you know these things because every single person has that intrinsic value. And once you start adding more value to the, the systems that we're creating now, we're going to show that in the human factor. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and if I can just try to summarize what you said, because unfortunately I had a terribly timed grocery delivery. Um, you, those are partnerships that you've already got underway. You've already developed um, and you're looking, if, if it's going to be another partnership, you're very careful about who you work with because as you said, you're right on that precipice. You don't want to deal with anything that's going to screw it up. And beyond that, um, they have to be mature companies that are pursuing, you know, very real world, high benefit, high leverage activity that is going to make a significant difference and they're already a proven, proven entity. So absolutely, the clients are the startups, the, the partners need to be you know, well-established entities. Absolutely. Gotcha. Let's say if somebody is listening and they, they think they've got somebody in mind that would be a good fit, um, you know, and they could set up an introduction, is, uh, is there anybody that you really love to meet up or work with that you don't you don't connect with. You don't have to name names if you don't want to. You can be general, but uh. no. I mean, I, I think I, I think the funny thing about me is that I've never been scared to uh, talk to anybody. So yeah. it didn't matter who they were. I just you know, said, "Oh yeah, you're you're that person." Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in that Academy Award winning movie where you won the Academy Award. Yeah, very <laughs> cool. Um, or or you were that Michael Jordan guy, you know, that uh, shot that game winning shot over Byron Russell. Brian Russell, which one is it? Sorry, I don't remember. But anyway, like you're that guy. Yeah, I don't mind. So for me, it's not about like the introductions. I love warm introductions. Um, for me, I think it's just if people are listening out there, what matters to me is that we're all connecting one another to the people that really matter and we're not wasting each other's time. Um, that's a big thing to remember here is because there's a lot of people out there that are not advanced. They're not sophisticated in it. And that's okay. That means they're learning and I'm happy to talk with them, but I can't talk to every single one of those people every day. You know what I mean? Um, what I really am looking for in, in any partnerships are those people that actually want to help get these things off the ground and don't mind investing it doesn't mean money, but it means their time. It means giving of themselves. So people that actually care about what's going on doesn't, it again, mean money. It just means like giving of yourself to the point where it's not just take, 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 take. Because when you take, 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 take and ask when Lambo, when Moon, and that's your mentality, you're never going to put back anything into a system that needs value direly. Um, so those types of people are the ones that I would like to reach out to me, the ones that truly care. You don't have to be advanced in it. You don't have to be the, you know, some MIT graduate. What you do need to do is be open and willing to learn because I'm going to do the same thing for you. 
those are the types of people that I want to talk with, whether those are venture capital firms that are like, tell me really more about what this means. Like, how does that, how does this affect me? How can I actually help my, my LPs, you know, in, in an early tech startup fund? Well, let me tell you, I can, I'd be happy to elucidate just a little bit more information and kind of just illuminate the entire room if you want, because there's a lot that I've seen that can be done. So, uh, it's not anyone specific because I want to talk to as many people as possible about it. It is vital for us to be able to do so because in the middle of the interview, we're talking a lot about how we're going to get to uh, where the industry matures. The way we're going to do that, that is by giving the information and educating people properly. So that way they're not confused as to the delivery methods. They're not confused as to STO really does versus an IPO or any security, like why does it even matter? There's an article on our website, just go check that out. I wrote that article in good faith knowing that PitchBook has great data. I utilize them. If you don't know who they are, go check out PitchBook. Um, I know this isn't a plug by the way, it's just a great place for verified data for venture capital numbers um, and private equity deals. So if you're in capital markets, just a really good way to do it, you should, at least join their newsletter. Um, and anyway, shameless plug is over now, but, uh, pitch books. Great. Um, so I wrote an article on our website. Um, do STOs even matter? You know, I would read that and kind of see where the marketplace has been going, um, in private equity deals and know that you can be part of that. <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that want deals to happen. There's a lot of these companies, there's a lot of these funds and they, they're hungry for them, but they're hungry for good ones. You know, that's probably why a company like EOS raises $4 billion versus companies that nobody's heard of with no team that may mostly be real, you know what I mean, um, are raising very, very, very little money. Um, right. it's, because, it's because typically they look at who's on your team. And if they know you already, it's like, you know, it's like you're, you know, a neighbor asking you for money. You're probably not going to do it, but you're at least more likely to. You know what I mean? So, yeah. right. Because you know them. You know where they live, too. So. <laughs> Accountability is the way to put that, for sure. <laughs> right. Exactly. So when you have that kind of situation, too, where things are developing and you're going to see uh, basically groups of people, whether it's a team that's starting a new company um, or, or it's a more established set of players that have come together, and they're going to get the kind of investment from people that's commensurate to their level of skill and experience, that's a good thing. Uh, the idea that the time when you could put up a, a white paper, pay somebody to write your white paper, pay someone to make your website, pay someone to do the marketing. And it's actually very um, B2C internet marketing type of marketing that was going on. Um, mm -hmm. And that is some of, uh, oftentimes not even legal, uh, depending on what you're advertising. Um, exactly right. So everything's going to be a little bit different in that regard now, but it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And, right. and that's, a, that's another thing to talk about too, is all these, all these people think that you can just put up whatever you want to say, that it can be all this sizzle and hype. And then in the telegram groups are talking about why there's not enough hype for certain projects. And I'm like, well, there probably shouldn't be because this is a security investment offer and right. it's posted online for public consumption. You can invest right there. Yeah. They probably need to be as just plain dishwater as it can be about what they are doing because that's the truth there's no hype there's no marketing about it it's just this is what it is if you like it please invest that's what a private placement needs to be you can't have these types of prospectus that are just like 
flashy and have animations all over the place and jumping. You can do some of those things, but they just need to explain what you're doing. Simply, right. that's it. So yeah. I would say if, if you're listening right now and you're wondering, well, how do we do it? If it's not hype, if it's not uh, using the things you'd normally use, if it was an e-commerce site or an internet marketing offer, that kind of false scarcity, um, all that stuff, then you're going to probably need a different kind of marketing firm or at least ask yourself, how do we go from hype to intrigue? If you can intrigue somebody, if you can catch their interest and that allows you to be very conservative while catching their attention. It's a totally different kind of catching attention, but shift your perspective to how to get people intrigued and you'll do a lot better and probably break fewer laws while you're at it. True. And I mean, that's one thing that we offer too. Like the most people don't know how to market compliantly, <laughs> you know, like they're just marketing because they know that they're marketers. Uh, you know, one of our partners is a securities lawyer, uh, North America and used to carry their series seven and, and was an active trader at one point. So they're very familiar with not only us securities laws, but Canadian and, and other jurisdictions throughout Europe, um, Australia, Asia as well. That's their job, you know? So for us to work with them, we're very lucky because they're not just, you know, one jurisdiction securities lawyer, like a guy from New York who that honestly super valuable still, but right. for us, um, somebody that has that global understanding is even more valuable because of the types of entries we're looking into the types of issuance that is going on in this space. So um, we're very lucky to be able to have the team that we have in place to understand the entire scope. And we're still learning too. This is such a new industry, but we're still learning and it's really fun to be able to do that. It's hard to learn. Um, it's hard every day to just feel like, wow, I can't believe I just consumed that amount of knowledge and I'm standing, but we're doing that every single day. That's what I keep trying to touch on. There's a lot to learn here and there's a lot for us to do together. Um, but we're doing that, you know, we're not just sitting back and going like, well, tell me more. I'm sick of those conversations. When people tell me more, I'm like, let's do this now. Let's start doing what we haven't been doing before. It's time to stop sitting on the sidelines and wait for everybody else to get this done for us. It's time for the people that have been working in capital markets, that have been working in venture funds or in business or as entrepreneurs, it's time for us to really start getting involved into this. And we are now, and we really are. We're coming together and we're getting this done. And it's harder than it ever has been. But I'm sure when you know Rockefeller standardized oil to bring it to people's homes, it wasn't an easy process to deliver and refine that and then also deliver it you know, back in the 1800s when, what are you going to do? Railroads weren't even built, you know? So, I mean, he had a lot of, a lot of time that he had to consider and how to deliver those. Um, while that may be an archaic way to at least bring this, this into concept, it's a good way for us to understand where we're standing in cryptocurrency and digital assets right now. Yeah. We're not, sure. we're not sure what, what we're doing completely, but we know what securities laws are, we know what regulations are, and we know how to get companies and issuers and funds to work together. And that's yeah. all we need to do within those regulations and, and working in concert, it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, that's, well, you know, it's actually, you said it's archaic, but it's a it's fairly appropriate example because if I'm gonna remember my Rockefeller history correctly, I mean, the guy's father was more or less a literal snake oil salesman, um, and then he, he was more of a traditionally trained accountant and then all of his business success was built on the back of M and a activity. Um, mm -hmm. and so, and this is on an infrastructure that didn't exist at the time. 
So that is a pretty good metaphor for how this whole thing is developing. You've got what people said was a lot of snake oil scams as the kind of background. Those accusations have been levied at Bitcoin since day one. And then everything that grew out of that with the ICO thing and the infrastructure that's there, the people that are kind of in it, we know what's happening in the other, the other technological spheres that are going to be required to bring this into mainstream adoption. But for the average person sitting there and they're watching MSNBC or CNN and they're saying, oh, well, this is whatever I'm being told. It's going to take a few years probably for them to really get what's happening. Uh, and even totally fine. Bit. Right. But once, once those private equity deals start hitting big, yeah. you know, once, once those deals that are being done in, you know, OTC desks that people don't see from broker dealers that are, you know, dealing in large sums, um, once those start hitting big and you start hearing about those again, yeah. it won't matter. It's unfortunate because a lot of times retail investors are following news and it's too late then. So like quant analysis can be done that way. And it's, it's tough. You know when to sell when you start hearing about news. You know, it's usually what you hear. The moment I hear about a company on CNBC is when I, you know, exit my position. So, um, yeah. You know, and I mean, that's right. That's what I hear from a lot of traders. You know, I'm not, I'm not like a trader myself. I'm not a day trader. Um, mm -hmm. I have stock positions, but I'm not somebody you should ever listen to for that kind of thing. But um, <laughs> disclaimer, interesting because I hear I hear that from them a lot, and I mean I know what they're doing. It's just really interesting, right? Because um, you're talking about you said TA and technical analysis earlier, but I see a lot of I, I wouldn't know how to even start doing technical analysis on some of the crypto assets right now. They're mm -hmm. just all over the board, and there almost seems to be no floors or ceilings and it's that's great i mean i i love those types of things because from an issuer standpoint that's a that's a good thing when you see volatility you know that you're going to be able to get investors into things mm -hmm. um that are more real world real assets assets that matter you know so companies that are going to try and generate real revenue um, and not just try to create a product because they're a development team you know yeah. so that's good that you're a development team but if your ceo doesn't know how to create a sales organization and generate revenue what are you going to do with that product because nobody's going to know what it is, you know, yeah. are all the investors going to buy it? Probably not. You know? So I think that was kind of the part of the dream for the very technically minded. And I've, I've been involved in different startups and you know, all of them failed. And you know what? A lot of them failed is because they didn't really put any kind of business concept first. There was no real need for what we were making. Um, and there was this idea that this is a really cool thing and look, and we we're using this, this technology and this technology and we're writing it in this and we're deploying it on these servers this way. And, and everyone's like, yeah, what, what are you talking about? Why, why do I need that? How am I going to find right. years of your life go by and you're like, well, shit. And I think a lot of that was the ICO excitement was actually, like you said, it was from tech teams. Like now we don't need marketers. We don't need we don't even need to have anything marketable. We're just going to get all this money and we're going to build it and our community is going to support us and we're going to give them this token so they can use what we made. And that might still be true in some contexts, but unfortunately the people who put the money in, they didn't see it that way. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And a lot of them feel like they're left holding the bag, you right. know, really it's, it's, it, it feels bad for a lot of those investors. Um, but the reality is that most startups fail. So yeah. Um, any any venture fund will tell you that. That's why they invest in a lot of companies, um, so that way they mitigate their risk. But even still, it's really likely that you know ninety percent of startups fail right. uh, within two and a half years. Half of them usually in year one. So right. Better to get it over. Looking, with 
<laughs> well, it's true, but it's usually because they don't, they don't have enough money or they just, they hire too many people too quickly. There's a lot of reasons. Um, most, I, th I think I read the other day, an article in, uh, was it Forbes? I think startups fail because there's uh, tension or um, indecision in core team is what it's called right. or something like that. I think it was, but that just means that they're not getting along, you know, you know right. in that sense. So can't, they can't come to consensus. Things don't get done quickly enough. So the advantage a startup has over a big company is its agility. And right. if you can't make a decision, then guess what? You've lost your competitive advantage. So guys get along. That's the yeah. main takeaway there. <laughs> well, you know, and that speaks also to, you know, not just strategic partnerships between companies, but when you're developing a partnership within your own company and how you allocate responsibility and ownership and accountability. Uh, if you can't get along and make decisions when there's no money, then you're probably not going to have the opportunity to have that problem later. So right, right. And I, I know that from harsh experience. Um, and that's just well, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, you don't have to get along with each other either. You just have to be able to make a decision. That's it. You know what I mean? Like, and you have to be okay with it later. Like you don't bring it up again, like agree to something and then move on, agree yeah. to something and move on. Like you don't have to like each other, like super friends, like, you know, go buddy, buddy drinking every night. Or if you don't drink, you know, have a coffee with them and talk about each other's kids. It doesn't have to be like that. Right. But when I get along, I mean, make decisions and then hold each other accountable. That's sure. the main thing to do in getting along. Like, um, I, I think people think that you want to be in business with your best friends. And I'll tell you this. The reason they say that is because you're going to spend a lot of time with these people, probably more than with your own family, to be honest, at least in the beginning. And when I say the beginning, think two, three years mm. is realistic. So uh, it's better to like those people. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you have to. If they're talented, I would keep them. <laughs> I mean, even if I don't like them, you know what I mean? Like if they can do things and they actually are willing to do the same things, have the same core philosophy that you do and they sacrifice to themselves, right. I would keep them even if I didn't like them, you know? Yeah. And there, there's, of course, a fine line between uh, – liking and disliking somebody and then they're being uh, is there a good fit you work well together because they could be boring you could hate everything they're into uh not the kind of person you bring around your friends but if they have integrity and they're really good at what they do and they're respectful and they don't embarrass you in front of your clients or your users then you're probably going to be okay Absolutely. Um, so you know and speaking on this we've talked a lot about these kinds of topics so for people that are listening right now who are looking for voices and insight they can trust is there anyone in the blockchain space that you hold in such high regard you'd recommend them without hesitation? Yeah, there's a couple of people that I really think they know what they're talking about. Um, Darren Marble, who you've already interviewed, is one of those people. Um, he, he comes from a background in crowdfunding already, so he got that. Uh, right away when ICOs were going on that we needed to shift into something that actually provided real-world value. Um, so he's somebody that, that gets it. Um, he's not a purist when it comes to crypto, uh, cryptocurrency any means. So mm -hmm. if you are, you're going to butt heads a little bit, and that's okay because that's how you come to some sort of compromise. I highly recommend speaking to that gentleman because he knows what he's talking about. Um, I would say another gentleman that I hold in high esteem um, as far as the way that they're able to navigate the entire space is a Michael Creighton. Um, Michael Creighton for me is somebody while he's, he's definitely more of um, a news magnate in my, he understands how to at least tell a story really well 
and get people to start talking. And that's incredibly important because as long as we're talking about these things, we're going to learn more from each other. doesn't matter if you don't agree with me. It's okay. We're probably not going to agree on everything. You know, maybe you like Coke and I like Pepsi. Not true. I like Coke better, but anyway, you know what I'm saying? The, the thing is we're all going to have just idiosyncratic differences and um, his his insights really help to at least give us better opportunities to talk those out. So I like, I love what his, his space is doing. Um, there's a, there's companies that I think you should get again, another, I'm going to plug them out. It's just block station. Mm-hmm. What they're doing to me, they have a handle on traditional securities exchanges and how crypto assets digital assets as well are going to be issued on those platforms better than anybody I've spoken to. And I'm talking, I've spoken to as many people as I could possibly do from high up on the food chain to very, very low. And these guys to me, I think are going to be game changers. Okay. Good to know. Hopefully they like to do podcast interviews. I'm going to check them out. Um, (laughs) So one of my favorite parts of the show is the favorite deal story. So in your case, you know, you already told one that was interesting. Maybe I got another, uh, you know, an interesting negotiation, clever application leverage, best outcome, serendipity, whatever stands out in your mind and we'll teach a lesson to this. Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about one where I was the person that was seeking equity in a company that I worked for. And that was, um, you know, kind of an early stage company and the company that I worked for, uh, have to be with a relative of mine and it was my dad so mm-hmm. when you ask for issuance from your parents for instance you think it's just a slam dunk it mm-hmm. made me realize at that point when we were negotiating that i was talking to somebody that was owning a business and it was hard for them to do this i had to understand and place my relationship on the sideline for a moment with that person because he had people that he was responsible for that mattered, Um, his employees, the other people, shares in the company. And I wasn't thinking about that because at the time I was super young. It it makes a huge difference when you can look back on those moments in time and think about deals that vision did going down. But um, I see now that those, those are the ways you learn the most when you are not expecting. And they're thinking, Oh, this is going to be super easy. We're just going to talk and it's going to be over and I'm going to get whatever I want. You know, um, it didn't end up that way. So I think that people out there should realize like there's a, there's a lot to consider when you are thinking about deal structure, what you're asking from people, think about who they are and who your audience is and what you're asking in return from them because that's what your offering is to them. If you're not willing to give of yourself as much, you're, you're really in some big lessons and those are good lessons to learn. But if I can impart any knowledge, it's that the deals that I didn't make, the ones that I wasn't able to consummate are the ones I learned the most from because I got the best feedback of my life rather than just being like, I'm really good at what I do. I was able to then compartmentalize what I'm not good at doing. And then I can get better. I want those moments. 
I want to be told no. I crave that. And most people hate it. I crave that because I know that's the only moment that I'm actually going to have an ability to change because I'll see something different that I didn't see before. Right. That's a great story. And it goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, which is if you're, you know, maybe you're a small team right now and you're looking at going and raising capital, then have the difficult discussions with people face to face, people that know and, and really understand your character and your background and be ready to hear people say no. You know, it's, it's in a way a lot scarier than raising millions from strangers on the internet who you never have to face. But, you know, business is still done in the real world. And if you can go through that experience, even when you fail and they say no, you're going to learn something. So, uh, Jared, what, uh, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave with, with the audience right now? Everybody that's listening, you know, you just shared a lot, but if there's anything else you'd like to throw in there. So I've got a saying that I, I say to our team a lot, and it's that life is 80% luck and 20% hard work, but you're never going to be lucky if you don't put in the work. Mm. Just remember that, folks. It's not always going to go your way. It's a hard fought battle, whether that's in starting a company, raising capital, or generating revenue. It's always going to be hard. And if you're willing to work really hard, you're going to be a lot luckier than if you were not working as hard as somebody else. But you still need to be around the right people. And that does take some luck. Sometimes it's just not in our cards, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to work as hard as possible to accomplish as much as we can. And I know that working with our companies and companies like us to help you, to give you the right types of insights are the way to go. Doesn't mean it's for everybody. Not everybody's the right match, mm. but it does mean you need people around you that are going to have the right types of philosophies and understand that this is an imperfect world that we are trying to make better. Yeah. Excellent. I appreciate that. Uh, right. Well, you know what? I want to wrap this up because this has gone quite long and I've taken so much of your time. <laughs> really appreciate how much you've been Thank able you. to share. Now, if, uh, if we can give back and if there's a way that we can help Block Rake or if somebody in the audience is wondering how they can get involved or check out more of what you're doing, where can they find you? Sure. So our website is www.blockrake.com. That's the quickest and easiest way to see what we do on a consistent basis and to contact us. Um, our email is, you can email me directly. I'll throw that out there. It's Jared, J-A-R-E-D at blockrake.com, B-L-O-C-K-R-A-K-E.com. Um, I'm happy to answer any emails I get from anyone that is listening at any time um, as much as I'm able to. I look through them every single day and there's plenty of times that I answer every single one of them. Uh, ad nauseum. Apparently, I don't have any problem talking. So, um. <laughs> no, no, it's excellent. Okay, guys. So, blockrake.com. This is Jared Johnson. Thank you so much again, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks, Colton. Thank you for listening to the Pendulum Insight Podcast. 
If you learned something today and you want to know more, go check out PendulumInsight.com.